Um, <clears throat> to, to think in terms of yesterday morning, part of what I was trying to do was to create kind of a, a, the beginning shell introductory moment of asking some real questions and making the, the point that real goals, real definitions, real expecta expectations need to be set. You've had some national studies and, and uh, you have a national task force uh, where you have proficiencies, these idea of proficiencies and competencies, how are we going to achieve those? And so that's in process. Then, specifically, to try to help fill in the gaps, we've, we've had some sessions on discipleship, leadership development, theological education, preaching, missions, and now we're going to talk about revitalization. Certainly, we recognize this isn't all that your role uh, could or should or would entail, uh, but we're trying to provide some pieces along the way, and then also just trying to expose you with some of the offices and some of the initiatives and ministries that are here at Southeastern, uh, since you are, uh, most of you are in North Carolina uh, to access uh, what Southeastern can do. But even if you're not in North Carolina, all of these offices and initiatives are accessible from our website. So just go to sebts.edu and you'll find the various offices uh, there. And uh, regardless of where you are, uh, if you're listening to these recordings later or if you're, uh, I think in this room we have people from Maryland to Florida, uh, something like that. So... Uh, appreciate everybody being here. So what I want to do is I want to take a few minutes, if I can, and I want to share with you about church revitalization. Some of you have heard me talk about church revitalization. Some of you have been involved in some pretty in-depth training with me about church revitalization, uh, two and a half days worth kind of stuff. Um, that's not what I'm going to do here. Um, and so I'll show you if you want to access that. If you've never been exposed to it, I'm going to show you a way to get a good summary of all that. I'm here in a minute. But really what I want to do, and I really should change the title. Uh, I almost did just a minute ago, but it's already in your little book. So, uh, Ten Principles of Church Revitalization, uh, probably what I should have called this are Ten Lessons Learned uh, from Church Revitalization. You know, I, I don't know at what point you get to call yourself a consultant. I don't, I don't know when that happens. Um, I, I never had a goal of being a church consultant. Um, I uh, was a pastor, and the Lord blessed some of the churches that I pastored uh, in spite of me. And people asked me how God did that and what we were doing and those kinds of things. And I found myself telling people stories about what God had done. Eventually, I'm, some of those stories found their way in some people's research and books and a guy uh, wanted me to come work alongside of him named Tom Rayner eventually, and uh, it became a little more formalized, I guess, in my life. At this stage, I, I've had the privilege of, of consulting with hundreds and hundreds of churches, not just in the United States, but all around the world, and um, it's been an interesting journey for me to, to see what the church is all about. Um, and so part of what I have said to you all before, some of you, and in your role um, and part of a ministry that I'm a part of that's actually interdenominational is I actually am involved in a, in a group that trains church consultants. And so um, part of my year is spent uh, working with them to train people from various denominational backgrounds, which has also been interesting. <laughs> um, people come from all around the world and all denominations to some of that. So it's interesting. But... From the perspective of an outsider, from the perspective of a consultant or perhaps a catalyst, I'm not sure what word you would want to use to describe yourself, 
the simple question is, is how does an outsider help? Uh, and how can you help a church, one of your churches? And what do you need to keep in mind, perhaps, as an associational leader? Um, because if, if you don't see this as part of your role, I would, probably, I would probably push back on that. I would think that this would be an obvious part of what you have to do. Um, I, I, um, I taught evangelism yesterday and also on, on Tuesday, and, uh, and we were talking about current issues. And um, I can do about two hours of stats on the American church. Uh, some of them are good stats. Some of them are not. Some of them are actually myths, uh, and I point that out when I share them. But, but there's no question that the trend would suggest that this would, should be a, a major part of what we're concerned about. Uh, church health church decline, church revitalization, whatever you want to call it. So, so let's talk about a few things here. One of the things that I always want to emphasize is that revitalization is only for those who are still living. Um, revitalize means that you still have vitalized uh, capabilities within your life. Um, I get phone calls. You probably do, too. You probably can tell me many more examples that I could share with you about churches that may have gone past the line. Um, multiple churches shut their doors every single week in the United States of America. Uh, churches are merging. Churches are being replanted. There are all kinds of different ways to look at this now. And those different ways of examining what really ought to happen in these places, I think, is well worth it. Um, I, I, am, uh, I, I am the guy who's lost it. Nope, it's back. I'm the guy who, to a fault, will probably fight for the life of a dead church. Uh, and yet, there probably is an actual point to where you have to, and this is just us leaders kind of talking, but there's probably actually a point where you have to evaluate, is this really worth the emotional energy and time commitment when they've probably already passed a line? And I don't, I don't like talking like that. I'm, I'm, I'm not a quitter. I don't like ever giving up on anybody. And yet at the same time, I have to recognize, are they still a church? So we may not be talking about revitalization. We may be talking about recreation. We may be talking about resurrection. We may be talking about replanting. We may be talking about closure. We may be talking about merger. We may be talking about other options that are out there. And I've done all of those things. Uh, the North American Mission Board has some expertise in legacy church planting in which you, you know, and that's the idea of a church that needs to be re reinvented, replanted, rediscovered. And so I would, I would send you to John Mark Clifton's material and, and the North American Mission Board for that. Um, that's not the primary conversation I'm going to have with you today, so there may be those churches that are still there. I mentioned this to you in a session earlier, though, that I do ask this. I ask this question of every church. Are you still a church? And people look at me weird, and they talk about their buildings, and they talk about their schedules, and they talk about their signs, and they talk about their budgets, and they talk about all that stuff. And none of that, none of that is the definition of a church. And so if you can't show me why and how you're still a biblical church, and what that really means, we're back to the discipline of why. Why are you? Who are you? Um, then we have to have those honest conversations. So are they still a church, or are you really looking for other options? Number two... A consultant's not a savior. And, and this, this is an inner struggle for me because I'm, I'm a fixer. Um, I, I was hired here to fix things. 
Uh, my whole seminary career is about fixing things or creating things. I don't do normal stuff. I either create something that hasn't existed or I fix something that needs to be fixed. That's what I've done for 20 years in seminary life. So I'm a fixer, and it's, uh, it, there's almost this defeatist sense, again, if I can't fix it. And that's my own personal problems and some of my own sinfulness. But a consultant is not a savior. You can't fix churches. And you've got to recognize that as the associational leader, it's not your job to fix that church. <clears throat> they, along with the Holy Spirit, have to fix God's church. Now, and if you're going to move there, become a member there, and this is your church, in a sense, and I'm using these possessive pronouns carefully because I know the theologically we all agree the church belongs to God. This is God's church. But if my membership's at that church, then I have a different stake in that church. But for most of the churches you're going to be dealing with, you're not a member there. You're a leader of a network, a geographically based network of affinities and proficiencies and competencies, right? And, and, and I've got to recognize it's not my job to save that church. What you're going to be doing is you're going to be helping them to discover and implement pathways for better health. And you can help give them tools and you can help give them resources. But as a consultant, very begrudgingly and with great consternation, I've had to recognize not everybody's going to listen to what we have to say. And not everybody's going to follow through on what we've suggested. And not every story is successful. So I can sit here and say, you ought to do this, or this is what it appears to us you ought to do, and they can reject every bit of it. In fact, part of, part of the reports that I'll make to churches is, you know, one of, one of your options is to do absolutely nothing. One of your options is to continue to, I said this in Boone not long ago, one of your options is to continue to do exactly what you're doing. If you do, this is where I think you're going to be in five years or ten years or two years or six months or whatever it is, depending upon how desperate the situation. I mean, they need to hear the honesty to say this is what I think is going to happen if something doesn't change. But the word change is scary, right? <coughs> but we can also help churches define the best ways to spend their last days. And sometimes I've got to be honest enough to say, I don't know that unless you do some drastic changing, if you decide to keep doing what you're doing right now, in five years you're not going to exist. Or you're going to be so different than who you are now. How do you want to spend, if that's the option you're going to choose, how do you want to spend your, your last days? And I'm, I'm pretty honest, and those of you who know me well know that I'm kind of brutally honest. But, but I have these honest conversations with churches about can, you know, I can help you spend your last days in comfort. You know, is, is it hospice? Is that what we're looking at? You know, we can do hospice if, that, if, that's, what, if that's what you all choose to do. If you're, you're refusing to change, you're refusing to do anything else, or you've gone so far, it's really beyond your grasp at this point, you know. Um, and so how can we help you? How can we help you make the wisest decisions in those last days about merging or, or replanting or whatever? But in the end, remember, you're not the Savior. You're, you can't fix them. They have to work with God, and they have to listen, and they have to be willing to change. Uh, revitalization requires change. 
and people don't often like that. Growth always requires and demands change. A seed doesn't stay a seed, a baby doesn't stay a baby, a puppy doesn't stay a puppy. It has to grow and it has to change. So, number three, revitalization is hard work. That may seem like a simplistic statement. It's not. In a book I wrote not too long ago, I, I start early with these comments and I said, you've got to remember that church health is extremely hard work. And then I think my next sentence is, is something along the lines of, I know that many of you just stopped reading my book because many of you aren't willing to pay that price. And so thank you for purchasing it. I hope you'll recommend it to others who might read further than what you just did, something like that, because I'm a smart Alex. I think I wrote something like that. <laughs> but, but my point is, is that church revitalization is not easy. And, and you all know this. This is common sense. They didn't get in the situation they're in right now overnight, and they're not going to get out of it overnight. It's going to require sacrifice. It's going to require submission. There's going to be a time commitment. You, we've got to get back to, to, to understanding who we are and why we are. And I talk about proper loves and fears. What do, I, what do they really, really love and what do they really, really fear? Because it's from those two things that their true values and behaviors come. If I don't really, really love and fear God more than anything else, then, then nothing else is going to work. These are spiritual issues. And you're engaged in spiritual warfare. And if I don't recognize and work through the difficulty uh, as the consultant with them, uh, I, I mean, there are guys I know, and I know most of them, almost all of them probably, who are full-time church consultants. It's hard to be a full-time church consultant. That's a hard thing to do. Um, because you have to charge so much money <laughs> in order to be able to have a full-time job as a church consultant, most churches can't afford you. Because how many churches of your churches and your associations have a line item in their budget that says church consultation? They don't have that. And so this is difficult on multiple levels. And so the amount of time I spend with churches I consult compared to, to how much money I make doing that is there's... There's no comparison. And so you've got to think, how many hundreds of hours are you willing to spend as an associational leader with that church? And again, you're back to this, these stair step to some degree. You're back to the idea of is, that, is their future really worth that? And I know it's a hard thing to actually say, but you've got to ask that question. Is this church really worth hundreds of hours of my time right now when I have all these others that I have to deal with. It's hard work. It's hard work on them. And I, I don't paint rosy pictures when I deal with churches. They've got to understand they've got to be willing to sacrifice, and they've got to be willing to put the time in, and they've got to be willing to change, and they've got to be willing to, again, understand the balances of love and fear. I just taught this in class this week, too, to where I said, look, the key to self-awareness and the key to church awareness is love and fear. And I've shared this with you, some of you all before, because fear is an act of worship. Love and fear are all wrapped up in authority. What, what do you really, really fear? Fear is an act of worship. It's an, it's an issue of authority. That, the thing I fear in my life, I pay homage to. The thing I fear in my life, I give authority to, which is why the Bible says we fear only who? Right. In fact, every book of the Bible has a fear not the wrong things version. It has verses about fear not the wrong stuff. Every book of the Bible has some version of that. 
And so it, 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 we need to ask ourselves, are we really loving the right things? And then are we really fearing the right one? Because if I'm not fearing God more than anything, if I'm fearing something else more than God, or if I'm loving something more than God, I'm an idolater. I mean, that's bottom line. And that's what these churches are doing. They love their golden calves. They love their history. They love their styles. They love their, their human relationships. They love their buildings, their, whatever it is, their legacies, sometimes more than they love God. And they're afraid of change or they're afraid of offending one another more than they are of God. And these are these bottom lines. And we talk like that. I talk like that to leaders and I talk like that to churches. And those are not easy conversations sometimes to have. And when we do assessment with people and we kind of break down where they really are, it becomes apparent what these real loves and fears are. I teach the kids here at the seminary that the, one of the greatest tools in ministry is that kind of self-awareness. And that if I, you know, if I know what somebody else really, really loves and I know what somebody else really, really fears, if I know what they really love and they really fear, I can lead or manipulate them. That's how dictators have worked forever. That's how Satan works. If I know what you really, really love and I know what you really, really fear, I could lead or manipulate you. But the most important thing, and congregations have corporate loves and corporate fears, every one of them. But the key in ministry is not that I know that about other people. The key in ministry is that I know that about me. What do I really, really love? And what do I really, really fear? That's the key. What is old Big John really afraid of? You know. And in church consultation, you've got to put aside the facades. Because if you're not willing to get honest, and you're not willing to get to the real issue, you can't just treat symptom. You have to treat disease. And if you're not willing to dig deeper, and sometimes that hurts. You've got to probe for the tumor. You can't just treat the fever, so to speak. Does that make sense? Then, practically, you need a defined process. We've been talking about that to some degree. You need biblical definitions and goals. What is a church? <laughs> I, I, you know, when I teach church planting, I'll spend weeks at the beginning of the semester with that very question. I know people who want to plant a church, and then when I ask them, what is one? What is a church? Well, the same thing is true with church revitalization. Because think, now, what I'm about to say is important. What many of these churches want is not a biblically healthy church. What they want you to do is help them to get back to whatever they have defined as the glory day of their memory of whatever their definition of the best church ever was. They, they want you to get back to the way it was back in 1950 or whatever it was, or 1980 or 1990, back when Dr. Smith was there. You know, everything was so much better when Dr. Smith was there. And what they want you to do is get you back to that rather than actually what you ought to be next. And what you ought to be next might have nothing at all to do with what you did back when Dr. Smith was there. But they're not thinking like that because their definitions are wrong. Because their definitions are based upon themselves. Their definitions are based upon their golden calves. Their definitions are based upon their own perceptions rather than biblical definitions and goals. So part of what you really have to do is help them to understand this is what a biblical healthy church is. To proactively teach biblical healthy church models in an associational level would be huge. For them to really understand people and pastors say, well, I know what that is. Well, you wait. You get them in a room and you actually start talking about it and they don't know what it is. 
They've forgotten. They've taken their eyes off of it. So when I do interims, for example, we go through the book of Acts. We just go through, I go through the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts. And we look at the church in Jerusalem and we look at the church in Antioch. And before it's over, I'm comparing those two churches. And I'm saying, look at what both of these churches did. Here are two churches God blessed in very different contexts, very different makeup, very different cultural scenarios. And yet look at what God did in these two different churches. And we can learn models from that. You figure out yours, etc. But there needs to be a guiding path and process. And you need to have a specific process or you'll get lost and you'll just find yourself doing circular, circular motion that doesn't lead to anything. Now, some of you, and I'm not going to talk about this today, some of you have seen and, and we've worked for days on my process. And if you've never seen that before and you have no idea what my process is, I'm going to give you a resource here in a minute. You can go find it yourself. But, but many of you have walked through this with me, and this is the actual process I use. And, and I believe that a biblically healthy church is constantly moving through all these phases. Constantly. Never, ever, ever, ever stops. But whatever your process, it doesn't have to look like that, but whatever your process is, you need one. Because if not, you'll drive yourself crazy as a consultant. I mean, this is self-preservation. I mean, if you, because if you're going to sit there and say, I mean, Bob, how many churches are in Metrolina? 140. So I got 140 churches. Now, some of you, who has, who has a really, a much smaller number than that in their association? How many? 21. 21 to 140, probably all kinds of numbers in between. So you sit there and you think, okay, how much time, if I'm going to spend hundreds of hours on a church, how do you do that with 140 churches? And you won't have to with all of them. <laughs> but how do you do that with enough of them? So how can we proactively, as a network of churches, start teaching some of these things proactively to where I don't have to do this reactively? So the smartest plan in my mind for you guys is instead of waiting towards somebody's in the disaster situation and they need, the, they need a UART to come in and help them close the doors, um, if you need me to come help them do that, I can do that for you. It's no fun. But what's much better is if you can proactively stay ahead of the game. But you need a process. You need something to teach them to say, and it doesn't, you know, again, this is just one. There's, a, you know, there's several. But whatever it is, whatever the model is, how can you stay, and you've heard me say this before, the difference between a healthy church and an unhealthy church, if you have a bell curve in the life of a church, and you know, here they are, and they're really doing good, and they start this decline, a healthy church just knows how to stay on the left side of the life cycle. And they do that by reinventing, and they do that by re reassessing, and they do that by going back constantly to why. Why are we here? Who are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to be doing it? They may not use those words, because they may have different terminology, but that's what they're doing. They're constantly going back through that process. And so to have a proactive process that you all would use in your training scenarios with people and, and, and to find the fo folks who are being good examples of that to teach the other guys. Um, but if you don't have a defined process, you're just going to be chasing reactively because what you can't do is you can't get caught up into this little issue, and you can't get caught up into this little issue, and you can't get caught up into this little issue. You've got to recognize that all these issues are, in a sense, the same issue. And they're sin, and they're, they're, they're loving the wrong things, and they're fearing the wrong things, and they're not focused on biblical models. They're not focused on biblical definitions. And I've got to steer them back into proactive more what I call biblically objective processes versus personally subjective reactions. 
Then, I recommend strongly, and you've heard me allude to this, that you conduct both qualitative assessment and not simply quantitative assessment. Um, I know a lot of guys who are consultants, and all they're going to give you are numbers. I, uh, those are helpful. Uh, quantitative numbers are indicators of qualitative issues, but if you don't actually talk about the qualitative issues, you're not making any progress. And qualitative assessment is much more difficult than quantitative assessment. Easy to count. Easy to order demographic studies. Easy to do stuff like that. But to actually get in there and to do church health surveys and to do interviews and to do perceptions, et cetera, of, of attitude and, and where they are really spiritually and attitudinally is much, is much different. And so the problem is, in many of these cases, is what they'll, if somebody, a pastor will call you up and you say, so what's the problem? And they'll sit there and say, well, we're not, we're not reaching anybody. Is that really the problem? Or is that a symptom? That's a symptom. That's not a disease. That's a symptom. So what's my first, you know, remember my discipline of why. What's my first question? Well, yeah, why? Why aren't you reaching people? Well, our people don't share their faith. That's the problem. Our people don't share their faith. Now, is that the problem or is that a symptom? We're just talking about symptoms. We're, we're just running around talking about our fever and our sweats, night sweats, and we're just talking about, you know, that's not, a, that's not the problem. The people, fact that your people aren't sharing their faith, that's a symptom. Why? Why aren't your people sharing their faith? Well, they're not very evangelistic. You just said the same thing. So why? Are they afraid? Do they not know how? Do they have no role model? Uh, you know, because eventually I'm going to sit there and ask the pastor how much he's sharing his faith. Because half of Southern Baptist pastors haven't shared their faith in the last six months. So, are you sharing your faith? Are you being a role model for them? 25%, only 25% of Southern Baptist pastors say personal evangelism is easy for them. But 80-something percent say that they ought to be a role model for it. And so you sit there and say, okay, are you being, a, you know, so is, the, so is the problem leadership? Is the problem, is the problem fear? Is the problem, are you loving the wrong things? And I'm telling you, I get up, I'm going to get it back to loves and fears. Every, I mean, I mean, every conversation I'm in, what do you really, really love? What do you really, really fear? You're an idolater, pastor. I have those conversations. People love me. But in the end, that's what we've got to talk about. What we're going to talk about is a theological, spiritual sin problem. Why don't people share their faith? I can make the point with you right now. I could show you 12 different studies. My argument is 98% of active Southern Baptists do not share their faith. I, and I'll stand by that number. 98%. Easily 90%. So if we want to be nice, we'll say the 90%ers. Why do 90 plus percent of Southern Baptists not share their faith? Why? What's the real reason? Somebody give me your opinion. What do you think? What's the real reason? Over half of them are not saved. Okay, over half of them might not even be saved. So they might not even know the Lord they're supposed to share about, all right? So let's say we take that group out, right? So now we've got a 45% group of the first 90% group, and, then, and there's this group who, who, who theoretically at least are saved. What about them? Why aren't, why aren't real saved people talking about their Lord? No there's no accountability? It's fair. 
What else you got? There's no model for it? Right. It's not important to them. And they're afraid. Number one, number one reason is fear. When the studies come back, the number one reasons people don't share their faith, fear. We have people in our churches that are more afraid of what a lost person would think of them than they are about what the living God thinks of them. And that is a theological problem. And so in the end, church consultation is going to be talking about a process that's going to help you. To, and you're going to be talking about qualitative issues of, of, of assessment and also of identification. This is who we really are. And this is where we really are. Not, not what we want to say, not what we thought. You've got to get through the fog, and you've got to help them to understand, no, 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 this is who you really are. And this is where you really are. That's, a, that's true identification with churches. You're not sharing with people. You're not really making, I mean, are, does your church really make disciples? This is a question I always ask, right? Does your church really make disciples? And people say, well, yeah, we got this many people coming to this thing and this many people coming to this thing. And you know what I say to them? You've heard me say this before. I'm, that's not the question I asked you. Are you really making disciples? Prove it. How do you know? That's a qualitative question. That's not a quantitative question. And, and we'll sit there and say, what's the most important thing we ought to be doing? Oh, we're going to fulfill the Great Commission. We are so, we kid ourselves. The most important thing we're going to do is we're going to fulfill the Great Commission. And you guys, you, the Association of People, are going to help churches fulfill the Great Well, what is the Great Commission? The Great Commission is to make disciples of all kinds of different peoples. And yet... We don't have a way to measure whether we're doing that. We don't know whether we're doing that. Most of our churches aren't doing that. They couldn't articulate to you the way they're doing that. But boy, we'll give them a plaque if they have the most. Let me tell you something. The most has nothing to do with this. It's all relative. You know? There are some churches that ought to have more people than other churches. I mean, if you live in a growing, blossoming suburb someplace and you can't grow a church in North Carolina compared to you're in a, some declining old mill village community where everybody's moved out of town and nobody's left anymore and you're still, you know, the a growth of a church there compared to a growth of the church there quantitatively aren't even the same story. We've got to be honest. And you guys are going to have to cut through the smoke screens and not be afraid to ask the difficult questions. Then, remember what I said earlier, 90, 99% of the time it's the leadership. You're probably going to get called by the leadership. You're probably going to get called by a pastor. And that pastor is going to sit there and say, here's the problem, it's all those people. They won't do fill in the blank. Whatever it is I ask them to or what I want them to do, you know, 10% you know, doing 90%, 20% doing 80%, you know. I have pastors and they'll call me up and they'll say, you know, we, we stopped Sunday night. And I'll sit there and say, why did you stop Sunday night? And they'll say, well, nobody showed up. And so what's my question? Why? Why, why didn't anybody show up on Sunday night? Most people can't even, most, most pastors I know, they can't even get past that. 
they, they just stopped because the quantitative measurement that they thought was somehow the right measurement wasn't high enough, so let's stop. A pr and I'm not here to advocate Sunday night. That's not my point. I work all, the way, I work all around the world. I, you know, I've been to 60-something countries. I work all, all around the world and when you meet and how you meet. But, but it's like I'm going to pin them to the wall with this stuff. You don't even know why you stopped. You just stopped because you couldn't get anybody to come. Have you ever thought that perhaps your programming was so lousy and so pitiful and you put so much, so, so little energy into it and you placed so little value on it that your church members had no understood value of it whatsoever? Why should they show up? See the kind of conversations I have with folks? It's hard work. But somebody's got to be honest. And somebody's got to be able to have this honest conversation to say, listen, 99% of the time you're going to hear about the congregation, but I'm telling you normally, normally the problem's leadership. And when you'll look at leaders and they're not communicating well, they're not, they're not uh, modeling well, they're, not being the, they're burned out, they're tired. I get it. And it doesn't mean that I don't have compassion for them. I mean, part of it, what you all have to do <coughs> is be the therapist. You know, I don't have to do that. I'm, I'm the gunslinging consultant. I just come in and I'm gone and, you know, fire me tomorrow. But you guys, you're going to have a relationship with these guys. And so you're also going to be counseling and, 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 and being therapeutic with these guys who are hurting. I get they're hurting. But also, and listen to me, I also, use the, I also hear the excuse way too often that these pastors are burned out and hurting so much we need to take it easy on them. It's to the point of we don't challenge them. And we need to figure out what the balance is in reality. Um, because we can sit there and help a person justify their laziness till they die. And I have met a lot of really lazy leaders. And I'm in churches and I sit there and I go, how many people did you baptize last year? And they'll give me some number. I mean, that number doesn't even account for with the pastors just sharing his faith. What are you, what are you doing? I know a lot of people who are really intimate with a lot of screens in their lives. They spend a lot of time looking at a screen. They don't spend a lot of time talking to people about their faith. And so somebody, an outsider, somebody, has got to help them with accountability. Remember, revitalization is a never-ending journey. This is never a one-and-done. We've got to have, which is why I represent it in an ongoing cycle that never, ever, 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 ever stops. It's something that never, ever ends. Remember Paul's missionary journeys? And what's interesting about Paul, I'm a missions guy, and so you teach Paul's missionary journeys, and you sit there and you think of church planting, and people use it to talk about church planting, and that's great, and it's, and it's right. He goes around, he helps start churches. But when you look at his second and third missionary journey, what was really the bulk of those second and third missionary journeys? Yeah, he revisited the saints. He revisited the saints. He's going back to make sure that they're okay. And when you think about what, what he wrote, you, you don't really see Paul writing to a lot of people saying, you ought to get out there and share your faith. Now, there's some of that in there. Romans 9, Romans 10, different places that we can say. But that's really not what he's writing about most of the time. What he's writing about most of the time is, you all need to believe right and you need to behave right. And you're not doing that, Corinthians, Galatians, etc. You're not believing right and you're not behaving right. It, it was a never-ending cycle for him in both his visits and in his writings. And so to separate evangelism from discipleship is really immature. 
And I know people, and I meet people on this campus, and they don't care for me sometimes, because I meet people on this campus, and they'll sit there and say, I'm really into that deeper study. That's what I want to say, deeper study. Because somehow that makes them holier, I guess, more spiritual. And then I'll look, they don't want to, they see me and they talk to me like that, I'm going to say, well, then that deeper study ought to lead you to share your faith with somebody else. Because if you're not evangelistic, then your discipleship is immature and incomplete. And that's the bottom line. And in Southern Baptist life, we have a lot of intellectual disciples who come to the next study and they go 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 to the next study and they do nothing with it. And Jesus talked about that, and he says, don't just be a hearer. It's an incomplete, immature discipleship. If it does not spiral you out into being the temple that goes out into the world in a centrifugal way to share the gospel. But revitalization is a never-ending journey. It never, ever stops. The enemy never, ever stops. He will attack, and especially the churches that start turning. He will attack them, and he'll attack them, and he'll attack them, and he never sleeps, he never rests, he never shuts up. He will not stop. And somebody's got to help and walk alongside these churches. This Church health is a never-ending journey. And church health and revitalization is all about relationships. Always is. And there's two relationships I teach about, and you've heard me say this, so I won't spend a lot of time here, but, but I talk about two intentional relationships that you need in life in order to be missional. One is you've got to have a very intentional relationship with God and his people, and then you're ready to have a very intentional relationship with the world and its people. And you've got to remember that both of these relationships are in Scripture, and both of these relationships are very true. I need to love the Lord God with my entire being, then I can love my neighbor as myself. I can't love my neighbor as myself until I love the Lord God with my entire being. Relationship number one takes precedent over relationship number two. So I need to be engaged in a strong relationship with God in the church. Then I'm ready to be engaged in the intentional salt and light relationship that I have the world with and his people. And unfortunately, we often talk about in missions and evangelism, going out to share with the world, et cetera, and we don't prep people well enough in their relationship with God in the church to be ready to even go out and do that. And so don't sit there, uh, associational missions strategists, and hammer people about doing evangelism and missions if you know that frankly, most of the people in your association are so spiritually and theologically immature, they're not ready for it. They need a healthy walk with God in order to be empowered to share their faith in the right way. But both congregational and community relationships become crucial. And their relationship with one another and their relationship to their communities, and notice it's plural because there's more than one. Every church has more than one community. Normally, you know, we, we like to do demographic because we're so bound. Americans are so bound to quantitative analysis. We like to do measurements of five miles around an address, and somehow we think that's the church's community. And we, because we hypocritically will teach ecclesiologically that the church is not that building, and yet we do all the measurements as if the church is that building. And we need to ask ourselves, where do these people really live? Where do these people really go to school? Where do these people really work? That's the church's community. I mean, if everybody drives in from the suburb, like back to an urban setting, Bob, if everybody drives in from the suburb to some inner city church building, then, then the church's community has almost nothing to do with that church building. And we'll sit there and shake our fingers at shame on you for not reaching the people around your church building. And the people ought to say back to us, well, I don't have anything to do with anything here. The only time I'm ever in here is an hour a week. That's the only time I'm in this zip code. 
But I say there's, it's a plural because I'm looking for a both-and responsibility. That there ought to be a responsibility for reaching those people around that church building. But there also has to be a responsibility for reaching the people who are actually in your life. But the methodology of reaching the people around your church building and the methodology of teaching the people who are actually in your life could be completely different. And, and we need to help people understand that truth. I'm trying to get to truth, reality, authenticity, truth, right? Rather than just cliches and stereotypes. It's all about relationships. Because, and this might be the most important thing I say to you, and I've tried to say this every time I see you guys, <coughs> church revitalization is church member revitalization. Don't make it something else. The church is not some nebulous them. It's not some other entity. It's, the, it's those people. So when you're talking about biblical, healthy church, you're talking about biblically healthy disciples, individuals, people. This is about, so this, and, and so we, we'll spend so much time talking about the corporate programming structures. And what we really need to be talking about are the personal discipleship processes. What are they doing? How is their personal quiet time? How is their personal, don't just talk about Sunday school. Don't just talk about small groups or whatever really cool name you give it. Talk about how are they personally studying the word of God? Are they are we really making disciples? And a good consultant is going to go beyond just the corporate. And it's easy. I know guys who don't. I know lots of guys that they'll come in and all they're going to analyze this corporate thing, and they're going to give you a lot of they'll give you pages of quantitative data about that corporate thing, and and that's it's nice to have. I do that too, but that's just a part of what I'll do. You can get some of that stuff, but make sure you're diving much more deeper, uh, deeply qualitatively into the life of the individual members, and that's leaders and laity. How is the pastor's walk with God? That, that ought to be some of the, if, you, if, a, if a pastor calls you up and says, our church is dying and I need help, some of the first things you ought to be talking about are his personal walk with God issues. Because if he doesn't have the power of the Holy Spirit on his side, if he is not, in, if he doesn't have wisdom from on high, if he doesn't, because if he's trying to do this by his own strength, no wonder he's fried. He's got to have an abiding connection with the master builder. It's his church, not our church. I will build my church, thank you very much. And I need to be in an abiding connection with the vine so that we can bear fruit. And if I'm apart from that vine, I can produce nothing. And it's amazing to me how few consultants have those conversations. They're, they're going to sit there and say, well, let's talk about how many people you have in worship. Let's talk about how many people you have in Bible study. Let's talk about how many parking spots you got, how many square inches you need in your nursery. I mean, and all those things can be done. I can tell you how big, I can tell you how many how many inches an American rear end it now requires on a pew. I mean, I can do all that, and there may be a place for all of that. But that's that's not the real issue. Normally, normally it's not. Normally, it's uh, it's about it's about who is the church. It's about church member uh, uh, sanctification. It's about discipleship because sanctification is a never-ending journey, just like church revitalization. Discipleship is a never-ending journey, just like church revitalization. And what they've forgotten is they've forgotten why they're there, and they've forgotten who they really are. And then 
and there's, you know, and this isn't number 10 because it's the least important. Church revitalization depends upon the Holy Spirit, not you. So real prayer, real authentic worship. And what I mean by authentic worship is I mean really, we really are taking the focus off of us and we're placing it upon him where it belongs. And so when we're asking questions, we're not here for, for, for justification. We're not here for self-preservation. We're here to actually acknowledge this is his church and who he is and what he wants to do. And, there, and to recognize an understood intentional discipleship process. And I find almost no churches possessing an understood intentional discipleship process. Almost none. To where I could go talk to a church member, because I do interviews. Like at Boone, I've done over 100 interviews with members one-on-one. -on -one. Okay, I get together with individuals and I have a series of questions and we talk about qualitative issues. And, I, and, and if I were to ask an average church member in almost every, almost every single church I've ever consulted with, and I ask them, you explain to me what you're supposed to do next in your discipleship walk. Explain to me what your children are supposed to do next. Explain to me what your students are supposed to do next. Almost nobody understands that. There's no understood process or value. And yet we'll claim that the most important thing we do is make disciples. And yet nobody knows how. It just kind of happens, I guess. And so to help churches with this real prayer, authentic worship, and understood intentional discipleship, we'll take them a long way down the road. So for those of you, and you have this in your book someplace, I wrote, it's an e-book, it's an e-book on purpose, sorry, it's not in print, you can't get a hard copy, print one off if you want it, uh, through what's called uh, the Word Search Bible uh, stuff <coughs> with Rodman and Holman, and there's a summary there. If uh, you've never done Word Search at all, then this will be worth it to you just to use that code on number three, whether you get my book or not, don't worry about it, but on number three, use that code and you ought to get a free library. It's kind of like Logos, but it's the Robin and Holman stuff, and you'll get a bunch of freebies by just doing that. Um, and then if you want, my book's there if you want that, if you want a summary and of what some of these folks have been through for two and a half days before. But in the end, the bottom line for me is I wasn't raised in this thing called the church. And so the church has become a really interesting uh, organism for me over the years. And um, I, I don't really know why I... I'm in the position I'm in, and I get to talk to people, and people call me every week and want me to help them with their churches. Because um, I don't advertise, I don't promote any of this. But, but it's interesting to me what I've been able to see and what I've been able to learn. And what I really do see is, is a lack of intentionality in leadership, and then I see this really lack of intentionality in discipleship. And the two go hand in hand. And the leaders are existing. And, and it's Monday, so I have to. Then it's Tuesday, so I better. Now it's Wednesday, so I know I have to do this. And then it's Thursday, so my so I have to better. And then it's already Friday, and I'm, they're just reacting. And if you as a leader could work with them to shift from a reactive to a proactive stance, um, <coughs> it could be really significant. Any questions or comments about church revitalization just for a couple minutes before I move us into a Something completely different. Yep. The last point you left on, on understood intentional discipleship. As an interim pastor, what intentional discipleship plan do you think? Yeah. 
So that's a good question. So what intentional discipleship plan do I lead them down like when I'm an interim? So what we're doing right now, I did, and I do this at every church. Uh, Boone's in the middle of it right now. Uh, this Sunday, I will preach a sermon about this again. So I make them put together discipleship goals for their church. We'll, we'll sometimes call it something a lot cooler than that, but that's what it is. In other words, if, if the church members cannot articulate to me, this is what it means to be a healthy disciple, then they need goals. So I, and so a lot of churches, especially as an interim, I do this, and as a consultant, I recommend this. A lot of churches have cool bumper stickers and ban banners and, you know, we're going to reach, teach, and release or whatever we're going to do. You know, we're going to reach up, reach in, reach out, or whatever, whatever the bumper sticker thing is. And yet, very often when I have conversations or interviews with leaders and church members, they really don't know what that stuff means. It's just something they plaster on websites and bumper stickers. And so often as an interim or a consultant, I'll say, well, let's just use that. Because it's not my goal necessarily to reinvent your language. Because the new guy coming in, he may bring his own cool language from wherever he's coming. And so I'm, I'm not here to mess up the T-shirts. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to reprint all the T-shirts and all the bumper stickers. But what does that mean? Because they, they can sit there and say, well, you know, that means we're going to make disciples. And then we're going to do evangelism. <coughs> and then, But when you realize you're not... But you're not doing that. So we need real discipleship goals. So in my world, I break them down into being, knowing, and doing goals. So, it, so most of the time, and, you, you know, and they, they don't always admit this, but it almost always ends up being an Acts 2 type of thing to where, to where they're going to talk about evangelism, they're going to talk about worship, they're going to talk about prayer, they're going to talk about discipleship, they're going to talk about ministry. However you want to break that down. So what I'm going to lead them to do is they have to write out. And I wish I had one. I, I could show you the one from Mount Vernon. Well, I probably, I probably do have it in that bag. Um, I could probably show you Mount Vernon. So you actually, so so if so, whatever words represent worship, whatever the cool thing is for worship, who do I need to be as a disciple to be healthy in worship? What do I need to know in order to be that? And what do I need to be doing to live that out? And I, they, and I mean, they write complete sentences, bullet point goals that can then be taught in various curricular moments. So then we're going to go back and we're going to sit there and say, okay, so why do you have Sunday school or your small group structure? What are they doing in there? So then we have these meetings about the consistency of purpose of our small groups. So in other words, why would your small group be a primary vehicle for teaching these 12 goals. If you're going to say that these 12 goals define a biblical disciple at First Baptist Church, then why would your small group structures whole world not be about teaching those 12 goals? So, because I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly simple guy. If I can get every single member to come to the primary worship experience, and I can get every single member to come to the primary small group experience, I'm a pretty happy camper if my primary small group experience is doing what it ought to do. So I've spent a lot of time revitalizing Sunday schools, old-fashioned, nutty Sunday schools. But if you're going to sit there and say, you know, if that's the skull and the spinal column of the body, now I'm not saying that's all, and then what other ministry you want to serve in or whatever you're going to do the rest of the week or whatever you've got to do. But if these are our primary, especially as an interim, to sit there and say, which of these written, specific, contextualized discipleship goals will the worship service and that small group ministry help people meet? Because here's what I want. I want understood value, which is what the book's about. 
I want people to understand the value of church. And what I mean by that is, is I want that single mom to know and to even be able to articulate, I need my daughter to go to that children's ministry thing on Wednesday night because that children's ministry thing on Wednesday night is going to help my daughter accomplish goal number three and goal number nine. It's that specific in my life. Now, you, you might call it something else, but that's the idea. I know exactly why my student needs to be in the student thing. I know, it, And so coming to my small group is way too valuable for me. I would never miss it because it's actually producing in me things of value. I don't want to ever stop the Sunday night thing because it's actually valuable to, up to me. And I wouldn't miss it for the world. And, and I'll be honest with you, in my conversations with most church members in most of these churches, because if you call me, you're usually dysfunctional, but, if you're, but the, most of my conversations, they're so far from that understanding. They're, when you ask them, why are you coming? They don't know why they're coming. Because that's the thing to do. But it's not really producing. So if I could get a church to where the members of that church actually have understood value of this is why the programming is what it is, and then it, where it really gets magical is the communities actually have understood value of that church. To where the communities are actually being impacted in such a way to where they would actually consider that church presence in their midst as valuable. Listen, we live in a world of consumers, and they're spending their currency. And they're going to spend their currency on what they define as valuable. And so we have to help them define value for them. They need specific goals in mind that they're going to achieve. And then they need to see how that weekly programming ties to the accomplishment. And at that point, goal achievement's everything. The entire world is about achieving these goals. And everything you plan, every program you plan, every event you plan, everything you do should be about goal achievement. That's it. You never stops. And then you assess again, and you, you re-identify, and you have a new plan, and you adjust, and then you, re, and you rinse, and it just never, ever stops. So you stay on the left side of the life cycle. And so in my world, I actually make the church leaders write out discipleship goals, new ones, that, that the average church member can understand. And then we actually will preach a sermon series about those discipleship goals. And then we're going to sit there and say, so every Wednesday night study is going to be about one of these goals, or our entire small group structure is about achieving these goals on every single age level. And so we talk about how would the kids interpret these goals, how would the youth interpret these goals, how do the adults interpret these goals. So everybody, everybody in the church gets a list of these goals. We print them. We make a big deal about it. They know what these goals are. These aren't just bumper sticker statements. These are life-changing hopes and dreams. It is. It becomes exactly your new member. It's easier to train the new members in it than it is to get, get to change the old ones. So that's kind of the process I go through. I'm not saying that's the process. That's just my process as an interim. Because, and, and, I, and we try to make these goals very biblical to where our new person coming in after me is not going to struggle with whether or not it's, a, it's the right thing to do to pray. You know? But, but to actually, you know, where they can use those as a foundation to begin to build. And what we normally find is the new pastor is just excited the church is serious enough to be talking about such things. 
and that they actually have an understanding. So we, we actually create lay leadership groups that meet about these things and talk about these things. So it depends on your polity and your structure. This isn't just a hidden staff issue. You know, we bring in the deacons or we bring in the elders or we bring in a, a strategic leadership team of other leaders, and they're all part of that process to where they're all, they all have buy-in. That's what I do. And then our, like, a, like at Boone right now, the pastor search team is equipped with all that. So the pastor search team has this incredible congregational profile that they're now able to go out and say, we, we now know what we're looking, you know, we, this is who we really are, which is really going to help us to try to find the right guy to come in here to lead. Anybody else? Um, I would say that it's, in, I mean, to be honest with you, in my experience or overall, that's the question. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm pretty picky about what churches I help in the first place. Therefore, my, my success rates are high, frankly. I don't know how to say that. Sorry. I said that on camera. Um, overall, probably 25%. And, and, and if it depends on how you're asking the question, there's a short-term success, but then when you go back and you say, how's that church doing a year or two later, which is a better test, they're back in their old habits. Because they depend upon, unfortunately, they're just depending upon you to tell them what to do, and then as soon as you're not around anymore, they're not doing anymore. Could be, yeah. It's, if I were if I were one of you, it would be. To where you know, for me, what happens to me is, is I you know my ongoing relationships with these churches vary so much. You know, some of the times I don't have one, frankly. You know, I, I'm I'm the hired gun. I've ridden off in the west and I'm gone forever. Um, you all will be different, and so what you're going to do is give it your best effort. And so I think you really do need a defined plan for whatever that means. You need a defined plan for your best effort. <laughs> and then recognize that if that best effort fails, my mama used to say you can only do the best you can do. And if, and if that best effort fails, then what is a, what's your alternative plan? Um, how small do you define a small? Because remember, normative is 250 or less. Well, for me, I'm at the same. I don't have a church that's up to 250. Okay. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, so once you get below 50, you have a critical mass question you have to ask. And, it, and it's contextual because you could have 50 people who have the resources to keep the ship alive a long time. Um, I've known churches that have 50 members, but they got $250,000 in the bank. Well, I mean, they can keep plugging along for a long time. They, they're not going to grow. They don't care, but they're also not going to shut the doors. And so it's all, it's all contextual. So do I have a really good success story of, from my personal experience? Yeah. Um, the stories that I know of churches that size would probably be merger and rebirth, the ones I'm more familiar with that I would call really successful. Okay, so 
Yeah, yeah, I I know those. Yeah, I mean, I I know some merger stories that are successful. I've got a former D-Men student who who's done one of those, and uh, that I could that I could I'm not necessarily on the camera, but I would could share with you. And so he he uh, another church actually came to them and and were more desperate than his was, and they've merged together and been pretty successful. Yeah, it's it's hard. Uh, and again, I I'd point you to John to Clifton at Nam some because this is what he does a whole lot more than I do. I I don't generally take those churches myself as a consultant, so that's part of the, the part of the problem with the question is, is I don't because I'm not sure I'm confident enough I would be able to do that. I'm probably too hard on them, but uh, I would refer at that point to guys like him. Yeah, now I know stories. Um, I mean, there are some stories. I mean, that, that they're not all in the United States either. I mean, I, I preached a couple, a couple months ago. When was I in Brazil? A couple months ago in a church called the Attitude Church. Isn't that what it was called? Um, in English. <laughs> but but this was a former student of ours, one of the leaders that we trained in Brazil. And they they were a church that had gotten down to 30 or 40 people. And now they run 9,000 with multiple sites all across Rio. Um, so it's a summit story. You know, it's, it parallels JD's story to some degree, although he didn't necessarily get down to 30 or 40. But, but it's that idea to where, you know, and, and what he pursued and where they, what they are now. Now, what they are now is obviously nothing like what they were when they ran 30 or 40 or even what they were before they ran, got down to 30 or 40. It was a total reinvention of the church. And part of, part of the issue with churches that get down to this level. I mean, I was in one of these not too long ago. I'm talking around some stories, too, because I want to be careful. So I was in a church. They called me down there, and there's probably 20-something people left. And so I met with all of them on a Saturday. And uh, and they were more interested in, in showing me the the history room 
that had all the photos of their past, I mean, literally, physically, they wanted to spend all day showing me what they used to be rather than talking about their issues. And one of their issues was is that they believed that the ethnicity of their demographic was radically changing around them, so there's no way that this group of homogeneous other ethnic uh, people could reach out to that ethnic diversity. Well, the problem was is that I actually do my homework. And there's actually no evidence whatsoever that from a percentage standpoint that, 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 that ethnic diversity has changed. It's just their perception. And so people believe in myth. Um, and people, people clutch on to stuff. I, I've told some of you the story before. I was doing an interview with a church member one time and a, as a lady, and, and she brought in a scroll. I mean, it was a scroll. And uh, she rolled out this scroll, and she goes, this is my list of grievances. And I said, I, I represent the senior adult women's Sunday school class, and this is my list of grievances. She wrote out a scroll. And I said, well, that's not really what, what I asked you to do, but, but since you brought it, <coughs> and it's a scroll, by all means, by all means. And before it was over, she, I mean, I thought she was going to have a stroke. I mean, she was standing up, leaning over the table, screaming at me, veins bulging, eyes bulging, red-faced, just tears streaming out of her face in her wrath toward that new pastor because he had moved out the Lord's Supper table in the pulpit. And does he not know what that, who gave that to this church? And does he not know who that represents? And I, I mean, I can't do the emotion. I'd have to scream. I cannot even worship my God in that room anymore because of that man. And it, it was all about he moved the Lord's Supper table out and the pulpit out. And I'm sure it had a bronze plaque on it or something. And uh, so you, you sit there and you go, how can I help you, ma'am? Because you're so upset about it, such a non-biblical issue that is so dear. and See, that's, that's, that was more valuable to her. I mean, think about what she just said. That piece of furniture is more valuable to me than my ability to worship my God. So there's reality. I get reality. I get to deal with people like that often. I get, I get interesting anonymous notes like everybody does. And uh, it's interesting to me. Worship wars are alive and well. But it's interesting how preference and history and mythology uh, become what I love more than anything. So I have imbalanced loves and fears. And as long as your loves and fears are not balanced properly and biblically. <coughs> see, see, I don't think God really meant that. I, I think that God, God really didn't mean that I couldn't eat that fruit. And see, I'm really afraid that if I don't eat that fruit, that I'm not going to get everything that I'm supposed to get. And because I really love myself more, and I want to take care of myself more than I care about the truth of God, I think it's really important that I eat that fruit. And I'm afraid I'm going to miss out if I don't eat that fruit. And I'm more afraid of missing out because I really love myself more than anything than I am about whether or not God told me not to eat that fruit or not. It hasn't changed much. Fruit, Lord's Supper tables.
old-fashioned hymns, coat and tie, whatever it is, because I'm afraid. I'm afraid to change. And so we have to work through these real issues. And so my point to you really is, in church revitalization, don't just get hung up in processes. You need one. You need a framework or you're going to go crazy. You're not going to have, you won't be able to manage it because you, you'll be dealing with more than one. And <clears throat> you've got to have some place to where you say, okay, this is where I am here, and this is where I am here, and this is where I am here, or you'll go crazy if you don't have some kind of defined process as a, as a leader of, of multiples. But at the same time, you've got to remember what the realities are. You've got to be able to identify 